All right. Um, Patrick, I feel like you should start because you got us all together. Oh, all right. Well, sure. Why not? You know, we can definitely, we can definitely go from the early point of this. So let's uh, go back in our minds to a time before a pandemic, a time before lockdown and quarantine, where the phrase Wordle is the sourdough starter of Omicron would have made no sense to somebody who read it back to a planning meeting for ASM microbes. So ASM is the American Society for Microbiology. And I am on the planning committee for one of the tracks of this meeting for the Applied Environmental uh, Science track. And we were having a jam session trying to figure out what we were going to put into our programming for the meeting that year. And it's a big meeting, it's ASM microbe, they expect thousands upon thousands of scientists to converge on a conference hall and talk about all manner of microbiology in its many and varied forms. And so we were having this jam session and I thought, you know what I've not seen a lot of is science communication in these meetings. We have a lot of scientific content and you know that makes perfect sense given the nature of the meeting, but we don't talk a lot about how we convey that content. And so I was having a discussion with one of the other people in the planning committee. And I thought, you know, it'd be really cool. Let's do a science communication session. You know, we won't use a large time slot, but we'll use a smaller time slot with fewer speakers. And everybody sort of looked up from what they were doing and were like, science communication, really? Okay, yeah, why not? You know, and everybody sort of looked at me and thought, mm, that's a, not the weirdest idea you've had recently. And so uh, I started writing up what the session could be and then started putting out some feelers for who could be in it. And this required a fair bit of background research on my part because I've done some science, but I haven't done nearly as much science communication and I've never studied science communication. So I started combing through the literature and just did some background searches like humor, science communication, Comics, science, not comic sans, but comic science. And, uh, you know, I came upon, first I came upon Jason's uh, paper on how to write a science comic in, what is it? It's plus biology? Plus com computational biology. And so I came upon that and I was like, oh, this one, I need this one. And so I you know, shot off an email to Jason and I got the singular fastest response that I have ever gotten for a meeting invite. He had a time of 37 minutes between me sending and him accepting. It was just practically instantaneous. It was amazing. Wow. I don't even remember. I, I yeah, I remember being excited. Definitely. And now you know exactly how excited you were, Jason. <laughs> yes. That's right. You know, and then we had a brief back and forth. And then I started looking for, I wanted a creator of fine SciComm and then someone who studied the SciComm. So I was, I thought, okay, I've got the person who makes the comics. I want the person who studies. And so I started looking for who that was going to be. And I landed on Sarah's page and I thought, oh, she studies humor in science communication. This is the exact person who I want in this position. You know, we've got the creator. We've got the person who studies it. 
I'm not going to be talking because nobody wanted to listen to me because at this point when it was being planned, it was going to be a live session. So it was just going to be Sarah and Jason, you know, interacting with an audience, giving a talk, taking questions, et cetera, like you would in a conference. And I would just be standing there giggling and being excited. And so, you know, I shot a message off to Sarah and she said, oh, what is this? What, what, what? you know, not, not sort of, you know, weirdly, but just, I haven't talked about microbiology to someone who did their, you know, degree at the same place that I got one of my degrees, which was University of Hawaii in a while. And so we had a brief back and forth and then she signed on to the project too. And so I thought, okay, I've got my all-star lineup here. We are good to go. And uh, then March, of 2020 happened. So all this was happening before that. We were in December through January timeframe. And then March of 2020 happened and no science meeting was in person at that point. We had, you know, weeks to pivot from an in-person to a virtual meeting. And so we all said, all right, you know what we're gonna do? We're just, we're gonna give, we're gonna prepare, we're gonna do our recordings. And then they said, well, you know, you're the person who set this up. You need to convene it. I said, sure, why not? The day of the conference actually came and the recordings played and there were so many people that signed on, hundreds of people signed on to that meeting. And the questions started coming in and many of them were fun and they had some, you know, all-star meme quality and there were some some jokes in there and there were a couple of people who signed on and were like i hate puns in the title of my science paper and we're all like then why are you here i Uh, I really appreciated how many people were sort of wanting to make jokes like this was an opportunity as a scientist for me to make a joke about my science yeah and the comments were just sounding off with these like you know excited nerd plays on words and you know look at this cool thing and then you know jason would dump a piece of content in there and then somebody else would dump a piece of content in there i thought it was a pretty cool interaction and then you know after after we rode that high for the full 45 minutes of the session, we sort of talked a little bit afterward as a, a debrief of sorts. And that's when we started talking about the future. And at that point, I think the initial, the initial discussion was about collaboration and like how things were going to proceed. Like, oh, are we going to be friends? Can we work together? <laughs> And let's see if my memory of that holds up with what Sarah and Jason remember about that particular set of of, uh, instances. What about you, Sarah? Um, Let's see. I'm Sarah Yeo. I am an associate professor uh, in the Department of Communication at the University of Utah, and I study science communication. I study the science of science communication. We like to make things more complicated. It sounds more formal. But I actually, this is coming full circle for me because not only do we have this Hawaii connection, but I um, had a project with ASM when I first started as an assistant professor. The then communications director of ASM, Erica Shugart, um, had connected, we'd connected at at a conference in Madison. Wisconsin, actually, where I went to, where I got my PhD. Um, And we did a study about microbiomes and the emotion of disgust. Right. And so that eventually led me like studying this emotion or emotions in general eventually led me to studying humor. 
And uh, I was really excited to be part of that panel. That was a really great panel. Um, the recording part, I was just kind of like, oh, we're recording this thing. The whole 2020 moving online with conferences is confusing. I'm still slightly confused by a lot of hybrid online conferences. I'm not really sure what I, you know, am I supposed to record? Am I supposed to just show up live? I, I don't know, um, but we're all dealing with that. So, you know, room for error. Um, but one of my biggest things is this idea of uh, the intersection between research and practice, right? And, and uh, Jason, as somebody who practices using humor in science communication is really important in this case. Patrick is, is important because he's the glue that joins us all together, obviously. You know, without him, I'd just be like wandering around in my research land and not being funny. And I, I, okay, Jason, have a, have a little confession. Um, I was like, I'm going to draw something. Jason says it's easy. You just have to be able to draw little stick figures, right? Uh -huh. And I, and I go and I'm like, try this. I'm terrible, terrible. Uh, that just goes to show maybe not all of us should be doing it. So thanks, Jason. I'll just go ahead and study what you do. <laughs> I've launched a thousand ships with this that most of them have sunk, I'm sure. Um, yeah, so I'm Jason McDermott. I am a senior research scientist at Pacific Northwest National Laboratory, which is in Richland, Washington. Um, my background, uh, since we're talking about backgrounds, I was uh, got a, a degree in biology from Reed College in Portland, Oregon. And then I uh, moved all the way across the river to the other side of Portland to do my PhD uh, thesis at Oregon Health Sciences University in the microbiology and immunology department doing um, kind of structural virology. So it was very, very basic science. Um, during that time, I kind of started to migrate and do computer stuff. And I found that I really liked that a lot. And um, so after my PhD, I got a postdoc in a lab that didn't do any bench work at all. So I was kind of transitioning, you know, what, and at that point it wasn't wildly, but it was, it was a pretty significant transition. And then I got hired at uh, Pacific Northwest National Lab after my postdoc. Um, but really my, I mean, pertinent to this, my SciComm expertise, if you could call it that, has all been practical. I've, I've always thought that um, science communication is really important. And Patrick said something. You said that SciComm is one of the best ways to get our science out there. And I would say it's actually the only way. So the only thing that, that scientists do to get their research out in the world is science communication. So that could be scientific manuscripts, which are science, science communication. It could be, you know, being on Twitter and promoting, it could be giving talks, it could be giving posters, all of that stuff falls in science communication. And I think one of the problems is scientists don't realize that. They think that if they build something great and they do a poor job of communicating it, that people will love it because it's great. Um, you know, so science communication for me has been I, initially, I thought of my, like, I, I started drawing a comic about eight years ago now, um, and it's Red Pen, Black Pen, and it's become somewhat successful, and initially, I was kind of like, oh, my science communication is in this Red Pen, Black Pen thing, and I'm, and I'm having fun doing it, and then as it went on, I, I kind of realized more and more that it, like everything that I was doing around science was actually science communication. And so then I started to try to take elements of that, that hobby, that side 
thing that I had going on and bring it into my science. And so I've done some of that, but I wouldn't call myself a science communication expert. I'm just a, a, uh, someone who has fun doing it. Purveyor of fine science. <laughs> I realize I didn't give any background really on myself because I'm a little scatterbrained usually when I start talking, but there's also the, um, full circle aspect of I used to be a microbial ecologist. I have a master's in oceanography from the University of Hawaii. And uh, my I then moved to Wisconsin because, you know, after you live in Hawaii for eight years, it's too nice. You got to move to Wisconsin. You got to move to Wisconsin. Wisconsin, which is great. Madison is great. <laughs> Um, yeah, Madison is nice. I always use that joke. It lands really well, but then I always feel bad about like saying, you know, Im implying that Wisconsin is not nice because Wisconsin is actually quite nice. Um, but yeah, I, I was in an environmental engineering PhD program when I found found science communication. This idea of the knowledge deficit model, it, it's so embarrassing to say this now. The, the idea of the knowledge deficit model blew my mind as a graduate student in engineering. Okay, give, give, a, give a two sentence definition because you could probably blow my mind right now because I, I don't, I'm not familiar with the term. <laughs> No, I don't, I don't think at this point anybody's mind will be blown. So the idea that like to know science is to love it, right? That like more information and more knowledge is going to change people's minds. This is where I was as a grad student in engineering. And when I learned that in my first science communication course, it was, I don't even know how I got home that day, right? I just kind of like wandered in this haze until I got back to my apartment, Um yeah, and, and that was the start of, I'm going to go find something else. And it turned out I enjoyed the social science research more than the microbiology research, I suppose, which I actually really love the lab work. You know, I like the kind of tedium of the lab work, which it is in micro, right? And microbiology tends to be pretty tedious and that's okay. Um, but I just, this was like, it wasn't an uphill battle to write a paper. It wasn't an uphill battle to do the work, right? The research in science communication, which was the way I'd felt in microbiology for a while. And so I just switched. I was sort of, I just defended a, a proposal and was like, I don't really want to do this. I'm going to go. Similar in a way to my, my uh, transition from bench science to computational sciences, which is I liked it. Um, and uh, obviously working in microbial, you know, uh, um, lab, it was, you know, tedious and, but I was like, there was such a, a shorter turnaround time to kind of the happiness of being able to make discoveries and stuff that I was like with computational work, there's totally, I discovered all the rest of the frustrations with computational work, um, you know, as I, as I went, but I really, I had that, that feeling like, you know what, this is the way that I need to go, which was computation. Yeah, and I think this is, yeah, this is, I mean, this is a huge challenge right now in science communication, this idea of professionalization. We don't really have um, good, clear routes to professionalization. There are some institutions where you can get an undergraduate degree in, the, in these, right, like Cornell, um, Wisconsin, the University of Texas at Austin, I think, is starting a, a, an undergraduate major in it in their communication department. Um, but the thing is, like communication departments and science colleges are so separate at institutions that we, my, you know, I know people in communication that have never talked to scientists really, right? And that's not 
surprising. Uh, we do tend to have these very siloed, even in universities where we try to have more cross-disciplinary conversation, we still have these silos that build up, especially around things like colleges, right? Colleges of humanities, schools of journalism do not necessarily talk to colleges of ag or life sciences or college of science. And so, you know, I think there are some disciplines that tend to talk more. There's a lot of conversation, for example, between engineering and other scientists, right? There's an, uh, an interesting part that you, that, of what you're talking about here too, which is the other side um, coming from a graduate program in, you know, microbiology, but in, in, in uh, molecular biology, I don't think we ever had a shred of training about science communication, other than what you get from kind of the anecdotal stuff and, and the on, you know, uh, what on-site learning that you get from your, you know, PhD advisor, if you're lucky, they'll, they'll have a coherent plan that they, that they talk about and, and you'll actually get something from that. There's no formal education. Like we got, you know, we got, we had a course in ethics or something like that, which was, which is good. There's nothing, I think that's an important thing. That was actually a good, a good thing, but it feels like there should, should totally be like a year long science communication course that is taught to just like all PhD programs. And of course that's, you know, maybe that's a pipe dream. Be super useful. We had none of that. I think there might have been a grant writing class available, but the general attitude towards our classes in grad school was classes won't get you a degree. They'll keep you from getting a degree, but they won't get you a degree. Get your lab work done. That's what's going to get you the degree. And so in terms of formal training and writing, it was, you know, okay, you've got a manuscript, write it. Cool. How? Well, you've read manuscripts, make it like that. Okay. And that's probably why my first manuscript, I submitted my draft in February and it got, you know, submitted in December or something because it would go in for review for the other people and they say, no, this is awful. Make it better. Cool. How? And so, you know, it, there was no real formal training for us for that. And I agree with Jason. I think it's a deficiency. And, but I do, you know, the point that you bring up, Patrick, about like classes don't get you that master's or PhD degree is, is legitimate because I mean, in, in the sciences, there's, there's so much field specific topic specific knowledge that you need that comes from being in the lab, right? That it, the classes do really can detract from that. Mm. But I mean, and, and most of the training as, as you know, now is kind of yourself selecting into the types of communication training. I would even say just a one credit uh, seminar or even kind of just being at a seminar where you're exposed to a, a talk about science communication, which I think more people are seeking out these days, given, you know, like we've said, the state of society, I think more people are seeking that out. Um, but still, once they kind of get this exposure to it, then there's the question of, well, how do I get training to do it? And that's still a, a work in progress, because I would, I would say that science communication, like the, the training community is also relatively new. There are, are some training programs that have been around for a, for a while, right? But they're relatively new, you know, still trying to figure out how best to integrate them in academic programs. Cause right now I think primarily they're fee for service uh, training programs. And so that's not reasonable to expect graduate students to, to shell that out, right? And 
it's kind of a thorny issue because you wonder there's the question of whether all scientists should be communicating. <laughs> I mean, my, my earlier point is that all scientists are communicating. Maybe, uh, maybe it's whether or not they should be communicating through particular avenues, because I've seen some, you know, horrendous talks. I've seen some horrendous posters and I've given them by the way too. Um, and, and I've definitely seen some horrendous tweets. I mean, that's one of the things that we're seeing especially in the pandemic, but even before, right, is you see these, you know, Nobel Prize winning scientists who are tweeting out this stuff that you're like, wow, that is really, um, that is really not what we need right now. You know, it's also interesting to bring this up because the speed at which science communication is progressing is incredible. You know, the the speed that things grow and morph and change on Twitter, TikTok, etc. You know, just the changes to the platform themselves and the way that people work with them is in and of itself a really interesting dynamic. And it makes a situation where, you know, how do you then start interacting with something and start creating content for something that shifts quickly, you know? And so perhaps there's also a component of the timeliness of things that would result in some of the um, potentially unsavory pieces that have come out. <laughs> and I think timeliness is not something we associate with like conducting, re like the process of conducting research, right? None of this the research part at least is, is not usually a rapid process for good reason. Um, it just is hard to keep up with um, the practice, uh, right? And so when, you know, I like to say that uh, science communication research and practice kind of go hand in hand, right? The, the um, practitioners know kind of the problems that they run up against. They have questions about how effective or what is effective. But researchers can't always answer that in a timely manner. Um, but it's necessary to have those conversations around like, what can we do, right? And I think the other thing for researchers is that sometimes the questions that are asked by practitioners, even though I, I think they're important, right? Um, mm -hmm. Journals and reviewers may not think they are particularly theoretical. I think if, if you've ever tried to publish something that is um, more applied than theoretical, you sometimes run up against these challenges, right? Journals that publish more applied stuff tend to be of lower impact factor. They tend to be less uh, valuable in terms of academic currency. And so there is a little bit of a disconnect, I think, in the field of communication where we are encouraged to publish theoretical work, right? But that doesn't always uh, jive with a lot of communication, which is practical. And so I wonder if there's a, are you just saying this? I wonder if there's a parallel in medicine um, because there's like, uh, you know, clinical case studies, which are basically practical applications of medicine. We did the, this thing to this patient and here's the result, um, you know, almost anecdotal, right? And then there's also the like, but then there's the other side, which is like, we, you know, we tested this drug on 10 million uh, patients over, you know, 15 years. And now we're publishing the results from that. And I guess that's not exactly a theoretical versus practical, but a little bit, right? Because there, there's definitely this dividing line of like, here's what's actually happening in the clinic. And here's, you know, 
here's a, a, a single example. Yeah, and yeah, I think that that's pretty close, right? Because the the it's sort of, I think of it as the abstract versus the concrete, the theoretical side is pretty abstract or it can be pretty abstract, right? And that just, that's kind of the nature of theoretical work is quite abstract. But calm, the questions that practitioners have are necessarily practical, right? And, you, and I think you can draw on theory to answer those practical questions, but sometimes I think the, it's not as specific as practitioners might need, right? you know? And so I hear a lot that like when practitioners go into the literature, it's not really helpful. The literature is not really helpful because it's so theoretical. And so it's so abstract that you're wondering how does one apply this, which maybe is a tension in all sciences that I'm just kind of thinking about in terms of communication. Well, that also brings us to something that is a, something different necessarily from science is that you know in our introductions you hear that we all came up through various programs and studied and learned oodles and oodles of theories and buckets and buckets of experiments and all sorts of very hands-on stuff for science within science in various avenues of science so we have a ton of theory to draw from the flip side of that might be in your average content creator who's making a video or producing content, chances are that any given person doesn't have, uh, what, a combined 45 odd years of theoretical training <laughs> or something to back, them, to back them up necessarily. That's not an indictment of any kind, it's that we're coming at it from two separate angles. The creator is doing very practical things, hands-on, right then, in the moment, producing content. And, you know, they get gajillions of, you know, upvotes, likes, what have you, depending on your platform. Where And it needs to be put out in a timely fashion. You know, there are people who put things out once every Tuesday and once every Thursday. Whereas some of the scientists will put out, you know, several articles a year in a productive situation or sometimes fewer than that, depending. But it's also a lot more time that goes into each individual nugget. So the difference between theory and practice gets even farther separated sometimes between the creator and the theoretician in this case. So I think bridging that is also gonna be something probably pretty useful. Yeah, I think there's a happy middle ground somewhere. You know, when I think about content creators, I wonder who are they thinking about when they create the content, right? Who do they have in mind when they're th creating content? What are the goals of that content, right? And there's some intrinsic goals to the creator, obviously, um, like for their own satisfaction or for their own, meeting their own purposes. But I, I wonder, and I think that there's a study there. With so I would say that there's also, uh, and this kind of threads back to um, Sarah and my experience in you know transitioning away from bench science, um, there's a little bit of there's a there's a faster feedback loop to the hit of um, you know neurotransmitter that you get when you get an RT or like that that when I publish a paper I get this like warm fuzzy feeling seeing it coming out public you know published that's like months or years in the making. And I'm like, oh, that was nice. That lasted, you know, 30 minutes. Now I'm on to my next thing. 
Whereas when I'm creating content, um, you know, in the entirely selfish way, there's a lot to just, you know, like people like it. And, and then there's that kind of like, oh, I'm getting a lot of RTs or I'm getting a lot of likes or I'm getting engagement in a, in a way, which is um, maybe says something about why, why I create, I make content. And um, I, I do make content for, for education, but um, I've found that um, the actual, actually creating content for education is, is harder for me. Um, it is not as rewarding. Uh, it is sometimes fun, but it's not as rewarding and it's difficult because I put a lot of thought into like, how do I make this metaphor work? Or how do I make this drawing work so people understand it, that it communicates the right thing, blah, blah, blah. blah. It's much easier to be like, oh, here's a funny science pun where I've just taken this word and I've swapped it with another word and now I draw a funny picture. Um, and so there's that, that kind of thing is like, okay, so maybe that does something good in terms of science education, in terms of like people are like, oh, scientists are funny too, but it doesn't necessarily communicate deep ideas to and deep scientific, uh, I think the best kinds of content creation do that, right? They are, they are really taking complex ideas and distilling them down. And it's what I talk a lot about when I talk about my sci-com, but I don't actually do it very much. But I think there's um, there's different goals there, and they're they're all valid goals, right? The the idea of humanizing a scientist is also really important because we know in communication that the likability of a source is important, right, for acceptance of the message or, or the message's persuasive capabilities. Um, but I do actually want to bring us back to this podcast, which we have not introduced what? because we barely have a name for it. And uh, it's basically going to be a bunch of ramblings from three humans who, one who is in uh in industry sciences, the other one who works in a national lab and me who works at an academic institution. And so I think we are tentatively calling ourselves Planet SciComm. It is the meta science communication podcast. We're talking about science communication research, the practice of science communication, other scientists just thinking about science communication. Um, and I think, that's, I think that's what we're about. You know, I would even go as far to say that that rambling that was just noted is actually the layout of various topics that are to come because any one of those that was brought up is merely the tip of the iceberg from style, timeliness, what the content is, how it comes about, who does it, where they do it, and all other pieces that feed into that, including across mediums and genre. So while that may have been a loping stroll through our consciences, <laughs> I think it also provided a pretty nice layout for what we'll ultimately end up talking about. I mean, would you call it a gamble, like a gamble through our consciences? Sashay. <laughs> Sorry, Jay. No, no, I was just going to follow up. I agree with Patrick because I think it is, you know, we're talking, we've got different backgrounds, we've got different perspectives, and, and we're talking about an area that, that crosses a lot of disciplinary lines. And I think there's a lot to be drawn from inside SciComm. So I'm, I'm on the other side, right? I'm looking into SciComm and saying, there's a lot of research that's actually been done that I could actually maybe say, oh, I can point to that thing that Sarah published and say, oh, look, this, the reason I'm doing this is because because Sarah says it's good. Well, we hope you've enjoyed our uh, sashaying 
what did you call it patrick oh i said loping, loping. but then you said you said gambling and then jason went with sashaying so yes. you know i hope you've enjoyed all those verbs through our science communication consciousness we are planet psychom and uh we hope to that you'll join us next time